At the back of the uh, Old Testament, there are 12 quite short books called the Minor Prophets. And um, of the 12, I, I'm pretty sure that the best-known name um, among them is Jonah. I'm also pretty sure I know the reason why Jonah's the best-known. Oh, yeah, he was the guy, wasn't he, that was swallowed by a whale? Well, the Bible doesn't actually say that. It says a big fish, but, yep, Jonah was the guy who was swallowed up. His, his book consists of um, just four chapters, and, and the, the sad thing, in a sense, about Jonah being known for the guy who was swallowed by the big fish or the, or the whale is that's not the main part of the story at all. It's a story about God speaking to a prophet, about a prophet's rebellion and distrust of God. It's a story of a message of going out to those who were thought of as, as pagans, as beyond the pale. It's a story of how they made a far better response to God than the prophet himself done. But more than that, it's a, it's a story about the grace of God speaking to the prophet in his disobedience and helping the prophet to see better who God is and how God loves. The four short chapters are two episodes and, and really written in, in astonishing parallel. In verse 1 of chapter 1, and then verse 1 of chapter 3, God speaks to Jonah. In verse 2 of chapter 1, in verse 2 of chapter 3, He tells Jonah what is the message that he's to share. In verse 3 of chapter 1, in verse 3 of chapter 3, we get Jonah's response. And then we get the words of warning, the message in verse 4 of chapter 1 and chapter 3. And then in verse 5 of chapter 1 and chapter 3, how the pagans respond in verse 6, how the pagan's leader responds, the sailors in chapter 1 and the Ninevites in chapter 3. And then in the remainder of chapter 1 and chapter 3, we have the <clears throat> way in which the pagans show themselves to behave better than Jonah's behaving. And then there's a lesson, firstly in chapter 2 with the fish, and then in chapter 4 with the plant in which God is teaching Jonah about His grace. And in that well-told story, it's in just the way that it's set out in shape makes it clear that the whale or the fish is simply a detail, no more important than the plant is in, in chapter 4. It's, it's a message about God and people, God and us. It begins quite naturally, quite, quite typically really, for a prophet. God speaks to a prophet and says, go, take my message. The strangeness in this case is that Jonah is not sent as the other prophets had been to the people of Israel or Judah. He's, he's to go to the Gentiles, to, to the Ninevites. And then the other staggering thing, the other striking thing is Jonah does exactly the opposite of what he's asked. Verse 3, he's not Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He'd been told to go east. He's heading west. He was told to go across the, the land to Nineveh. He gets a, a ticket to go in the boat in the other direction. How futile that he tries to flee from God. He went aboard and sailed from Tarshish to flee from the Lord, as if we can as if we could sort of go somewhere that God is not there. 
A goldfish might try and might as well try and find a corner of the bowl where he could hide and see if he could get out of the water. But no, there are no corners in the bowl and the goldfish has to stay in the water. And we have to stay in this world. We have to stay where God is sovereign. We can't run away from him. What a futile thing John is tying. And he's trying it, I suppose, for maybe two reasons. One is that he doesn't like the Ninevites. They're a different race. They're a different religion. Now, I would like to spend some time talking about the issues of people with a different race, different religion. And in fact, I'm going to do that um, in Claremont Calling. It's a shorter uh, message that we put out um, most Fridays. And this week, I want to say something about race and, and people of different races. That was the first reason that Joseph, uh, Jonah was trying to run away. The second reason is that deep down, Jonah does not believe that God has got his own best interests at heart. That's how, that's how disobedience starts out, actually. Disobedience starts with distrust. Disobedience starts with our saying, well, God might want us to do this, but I know better. We find ourselves tempted, and we say to ourselves, well, if I, if I obey God, I'm going to miss out. I'm not going to have this that I want. I need to be happy. I deserve to be happy, so I'm going to go for it. And so, people go ahead maybe with a relationship that they maybe know that they shouldn't be in. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody that's married. Maybe it's a relationship with a non-Christian that's not helping them in their walk with God. Maybe it's a relationship that's, that's dragging them into patterns of behavior that's harmful, but they don't really believe that God has got something better for them, so they, they go for it. Or maybe it's somebody who's really enjoys a good argument, but more particularly enjoys having the last word in the argument. And even though the heat is rising, and even though tempers are getting frayed, and even though relationships are worsening, the person's saying, but I must get the last word in, I must deliver the killer. Oh, I know God's not happy with the way it's going, but I, I deserve it. I want to get the last word. Or maybe it's about spending more money on ourselves. Or maybe it's something quite simple. You see someone drop a fiver, and rather than pick it up and say, excuse me, you pick it up and stick it in your pocket. I could use this. I need this to be happy. I know what God would want me to do, but God's not really got my best interests at heart. I know better than God does what makes me happy. That's how disobedience begins. That distrust of God, that not believing that God has our best interests at heart. And with that distrust of God, it's tied up too much trust in our own selves, too much trust in our own wisdom and our own ideas. I know God wants this, but that looks better. If God, if God only understood things as well as I do. But I think if we look back over our lives, we would see that actually we change our minds quite a bit. There was a time when we were committed to this. There was a time when we were going for such and such. But now, we see that that wasn't right. Someone retires and says, you know, I wish I'd spent less time in the office and, and more time with my family. 
what they thought was right and that they were committed to and doing, doing well at one point be becomes actually, in retrospect, something else. At the time, well, I enjoyed a casual flutter, but gambling took over. I saw it differently. You know, lots of times when we look back, change our minds about things that we thought were important. See, Jonah was like that. He, he couldn't see why God would want to bless the Ninevites. He couldn't understand why God should want to give them a chance. He was thinking, we don't like, my people don't like the Ninevites. They're bullies. They're oppressors. And because he couldn't see a reason, he thought, well, a reason doesn't exist. But like Adam and Eve in the garden, for it. There's not a good reason. I can't see one. Terrible when we're like that. What arrogance. I watched in despair this week a, a clip of people in Florida lining up one after the other to say why they shouldn't be, be asked or made to wear face masks. You know, it was their constitutional right to be free, etc., etc. And I don't see why. I don't see why. And because they don't see why, they thought no good reason exists. But in fact, good reasons do exist. And there's a lot of strong evidence of the uh, benefits of wearing the face mask. Too often, our, I don't see why is used by us to suppose that no good reason exists. Have any of us ever brought up children? Yep. Their concern, no good reason exists. But you, as a, a loving parent, as a caring parent, know why such and such shouldn't be done, or someone has to watch out while this is not allowed, or something else is not permitted. So, apart from anything else, experience ought to tell you and ought to tell me that we're not always right. Experience ought to tell you and ought to tell me that sometimes we change our minds and we change our values. Experience ought to tell you and tell me that there were some times we didn't see a good reason, but there was one, and later on, maybe much later on, we found out what that reason was. And that should make us a lot more humble. Jonah, just because you don't see a good reason doesn't mean there isn't one. And I must say to myself, Gordon, just because you don't see a good reason doesn't mean there isn't one. And so we have to trust God that He's got our best interests at heart. And we have to be a bit more modest, a lot more modest, and a lot more humble about our own wisdom and our own ideas. Well, none of that in Jonah's case. He was determined to run away, and so he gets on a boat and sails for Tarshish. And so the Lord then, verse 4, sent a great wind on the sea and a violent storm. It seems to have been a really strong storm because, verse 5, it has frightened the experienced sailors. Now, not every one of life's storms comes because there's a particular reason like this one. Not every time God sends a storm or something happens is because, because God's saying, I need to teach that particular person a lesson. 
Jesus in a story that we have in, in Luke chapter 13, where a tower had fallen on some people. Jesus says to his followers, do you think the 18 people that died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were the worst sinners? No, they weren't. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't go on to explain why it was those 18 people and different 18 people. He says there's a warning for all of us, but the tower didn't fall on them in a way that picked them out. However, in this case, the storm is picking Jonah out, as we find out later in the story. It's sometimes necessary for God to use other means, difficult means sometimes, to get through to us. In his excellent book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, who was grappling with the suffering and reasons for it, said this, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that He gives gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of His chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. In this case, Jonah chapter 1, the storm is God's megaphone. Jonah is not listening. God needs to shout out something much louder with a megaphone to get through to him. Sometimes suffering is what makes us listen. Well, Jonah needed even more help than the storm. He was sleeping, verse 5. The pagans, verse 5, they were praying, they were fighting the elements, they were both doing what they can and crying out to whatever God would listen. But Jonah was in his own wee world in the boat. The pagan sailors were concerned not just about themselves, but for the others. Jonah couldn't care less. You see, whether someone's a Christian or whether we're not a Christian, we're all in the same boat in terms of what goes on in the world around us. If we live in different storms, if we live in a place where crime is an issue or where oppression rules, if we live in a place where there's famine or water shortage, if we're living in communities where jobs are being lost or where the economy is crumbling, we're all in the same boat. It's the same for Christian and non-Christian alike. And we are all to pull together, and we are all to serve our neighbor. God calls us to do that. But Jonah was sleeping. But secondly, as well as being serving our neighbors, as as well as trying to help out in the situations and in the circumstances of life, God's people are called to share the good news about hope in the gospel. And Jonah wasn't doing that either. So, the people of God are supposed to do both, to serve and love others and to share the good news of the hope and the gospel, share who we believe in and why. And this picture of a sleeping Jonah not doing either of those, I think is a bit of a picture of the Western church of recent generations. Too often the Western church has been sleeping while the world suffers we're all right. We've got wealth. Famine's elsewhere. Warfare's elsewhere. Poverty largely is elsewhere. The church has been sleeping too often rather than share good news. We've not told people, 
here's something that makes a real difference. Here's a Savior that makes a real difference. I remember a number of years ago now when our younger daughter um, took some Gaviscon for the first time. She was astonished that it made such a difference so quickly. And she said, why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't MD let me know there was stuff like this that could help so much so quickly? Because we should be telling one another of things that help and make a difference. And if Jesus is the Savior of the world, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if Jesus is good news, then we, we should be sharing that. So then why is evangelism so scarce in the church and the Western world in recent generations? Why have we been so much keeping good news to ourselves, keeping it bottled up? Why has God's church in the Western world in the past few generations been so sleepy? It's not how we're to be. Jonah is an illustration and a warning to us at this point in the story. Well, it turned out, and the readers of the story will know this, of course, it turned out that Jonah was the problem. And again, notice how well the pagan sailors behaved. When they found out that it was Jonah who was the trouble, they, say, they said to him, not get him overboard, they said, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah says, well, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it'll become calm. But, verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, and then they couldn't. And so then they threw more stuff overboard. You see, they didn't take the first opportunity they had just to get rid of the problem, to get rid of Jonah. They, they were much more caring and compassionate than he had been, just as sometimes the non-Christian world has been more compassionate than God's people. It's the wrong way around. But eventually, there's nothing else for it, and they do throw Jonah overboard, and indeed, the storm is calmed. And the sailors learn from this. Lord, don't hold us accountable, they say, in verse 14. And then verse 16, they offer a sacrifice to God and made vows to Him. Sometimes the troubles in life, sometimes the storms, whatever they are, financial, job, health, sometimes these storms are great wake-up calls as the point that C.S. Lewis was making. Sometimes they are wake-up calls and they're opportunities because people are ready to listen. A few months ago, I think some people were thinking of the COVID-19 pandemic as maybe being one such opportunity. People are saying, we don't want to go back to normal. We don't want to go back to as it was before. We, don't, we want to learn lessons. We want to improve. We want it to be different. We want it to be better. Three months on, the flavor of conversation I'm hearing more is, oh, I wish we could get back to normal. When can we get to the theater? When can we travel? When can we have our holidays? When can we... 
But there was an opportunity there that perhaps the church should have made more to grasp. And perhaps there still is opportunities of the legacy of that pandemic. Maybe some people thinking, but why? What does it mean? What's it about? Why is there suffering? And the church should take opportunities to raise questions, to challenge, to open up discussions, and to point to Jesus. But overboard, Jonah went, and then God still was with him, and God provided. Verse 17, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's an incident where some Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, come on, Jesus, do a sign. We want you to show us how good you are. And Jesus answered, you're a wicked and an adulterous generation, and you ask for a sign. But none of it will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You'll get a sign, said Jesus. There's the sign. Jonah was a sign. But before Jonah is a sign in terms of his being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, in another important way, he's a sign of Jesus. He's a sign of the principle of one person suffering so that others don't have to. Years later, the high priest Caiaphas made exactly that point about let's get Jesus, let's arrest him. It is much better for one man to suffer than the whole nation. And John in chapter 11 of his gospel says, aye, that's right, Caiaphas. You don't really know what you're saying here, but it's right. Not just for the nation, but for the whole world, Jesus will suffer. And here is a picture of Jesus as Jonah is thrown overboard, one person's suffering being the release and the salvation for others. Ultimately, that is what Jesus is doing on the cross. But beyond that, there is the sign of three days, in Jonah's case, in the fish, in Jesus' case, in the tomb, before they come out. Jonah comes back to renewing the call to the people of Nineveh, but Jesus comes back to something greater, to new life of the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't come back to fulfill what He had failed to do, but His rising is a sign and a declaration that God's purposes had prevailed. The God who is at work in the world, the God who loves, the God who inspires people to act, the God who sends messengers, the God who reaches out, the God who brings all things together as He provides, that God reigns, that God rules, and the resurrection declares and shows it. The God who gives another chance, the God who forgives, is the God who breaks through stubborn self-will, is the God who through the risen Christ gives new life. So, where are you in this part of the story in Jonah chapter 1? Have you been running away from God, trying to ignore His call, trying to ignore His challenge? Have you been like Jonah, just asleep, not really getting involved, not really sharing Jesus, not really serving in Jesus' name? Have you been like the sailors in this story, caught up in a, a storm, and you don't know why, and you don't know where it's taking, and you just feel 
things are piling on top of you? Or are you like the sailors later on in the story who, once they've found a measure of release, are sacrificing and giving their vows to God? Whichever bit of the story fits your place and your situation, the good news is that God is in all of that story and with all that the story represents and with all the places that people find themselves in. Yes, Jonah tried to run away, but he couldn't. Yes, the sailors were in difficulty and danger, but God was with them. Yes, Jonah was asleep, but God was finding ways of waking him up. And yes, God was with the sailors as they rejoiced and gave them, thank, gave them thanks. God is with us. But let's not be the running away person. Let's not be giving in just to the storms of life. And certainly let's not be the people who are sleeping in the boat and not sharing and serving Jesus as we should. Let us seek the help and the grace of God that we might be brought to the place where the sailors are in verse 16. And they offered their worship, their sacrifice to God, and made vows to Him. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You that You don't give up on people and irrespective of our backgrounds, irrespective of where we've been, irrespective of what we've done, irrespective of what we've been like, you reach out to us in mercy, you call us to yourself. Lord, help us not to dodge your call. Help us to remain true and, and strong and, uh, in the storms and help us to look to you for help. Help us not to be the sleepy church, letting others do what needs to be done. And help us, Lord, to taste again your salvation and to delight in you and, and give you our praise, our service, and to do so eagerly because beyond the, the, the crucifixion, there's resurrection and new life and fullness of life in Christ. Help us find it. Help us taste it. Amen.